Today, we're going to be discussing another law in 48 Laws of Power. Last episode, I discussed Law 21, play a sucker to catch a sucker, seem dumber than your mark. In this episode, I'm going to read Law Number 6. When I want you to really think about somebody that's very important to all of us, I want you to think about Donald Trump. And I don't want you to think about it in a negative way. I just want you to see that these tactics have worked and that certain people have used them. So when I read this, think about whoever you want, but definitely think about this one person that has gotten us all connected in some way or another. Law number six, court attention at all cost. Judgment. Everything is judged by its appearance. What is unseen counts for nothing. Never let yourself get lost in the crowd, then or be buried in oblivion. Stand out. Be conspicuous at all cost. Make yourself a magnet of attention by appearing larger, more colorful, more mysterious than the bland and timid masses. Draw attention to yourself. Court attention at all cost. Judgment. Everything is judged by its appearance. What is unseen counts for nothing. Never let yourself get lost in the crowd, then or buried in oblivion. Stand out. Be conspicuous at all cost. Make yourself a magnet of attention by appearing larger, more colorful, more mysterious than the bland and timid masses. Part 1. Surround your name with the sensational and scandalous. Draw attention to yourself by creating an unforgettable, even controversial image. Court scandal. Do anything to make yourself seem larger than life and shine more brightly than those around you. Make no distinction between kinds of attention. Notoriety of any sort will bring you power. Better to be slandered and attacked than ignored. P.T. Barnum, America's premier 9th century showman, started his career as an assistant to the owner of a circus, Aaron Turner. In 1836, the circus stopped in Annapolis, Maryland for a series of performances. On the morning of opening day, Barnum took a stroll through town, wearing a new black suit. People started to follow him. Someone in the gathering crowd shouted out that he was the Reverend Ephraim K. Avery, infamous as a man acquitted of the charge of murder, but still believed guilty by most Americans. The angry mob tore off Barnum's suit and was ready to lynch him. After desperate appeals, Barnum finally convinced them to follow him to the circus, where he could verify his identity. Once there, Old Turner confirmed that this was all a practical joke. He himself had spread the rumor that Barnum was Avery. The crowd dispersed. But Barnum, who had nearly been killed, was not amused. He wanted to know what could have induced his boss to play such a trick. My dear Barnum, Turner replied, it was all for our good. Remember, all we need to ensure success is notoriety. And indeed, everyone in town was talking about the joke. And the circus was packed that night and every night it stayed in Annapolis. Barnum had learned a lesson he would never forget. Barnum's first big venture of his own was the American Museum, a collection of curiosities, located in New York. One day, a beggar approached Barnum in the street. Instead of giving him money, Barnum decided to employ him. Taking him back to the museum, he gave the man five bricks and told him to make a slow circuit of several blocks. At certain points, he was to lay down a brick on the sidewalk, always keeping one brick in hand. On the return journey, he was to replace each brick on the street with the one he held. Meanwhile, he was to remain serious of conscience and to answer no questions. 
Once back at the museum, he was to enter, walk around inside, then leave through the back door and make the same bricklaying circuit again. On the man's first walk through the streets, several hundred people watched his mysterious movements. By his fourth circuit, onlookers swarmed around him, debating what he was doing. Every time he entered into the museum, he was followed by people who bought tickets to keep watching him. Many of them were distracted by the museum's collection and stayed inside. By the end of the first day, the brick man had drawn over a thousand people into the museum. A few days later, the police ordered him to cease and desist from his walks. The crowds were blocking traffic. The bricklaying stopped, but thousands of New Yorkers had entered the museum, and many of those had become P.T. Barnum's converts. Barnum would put a band of musicians on a balcony overlooking the street, beneath a huge banner proclaiming free music for the millions. What generosity! And they flocked to hear the free concerts. But Barnum took pains to hire the worst musicians he could find, and soon after the band struck up, people would hurry to buy tickets to the museum, where they would be out of earshot of the band's noise and of the booing of the crowd. One of the first oddities Barnum toured around the country was Joyce Heath, a woman he claimed was 161 years old, and whom he advertised as a slave who had once been George Washington's nurse. After several months, the crowds began to dwindle. So Barnum sent an anonymous letter to the papers, claiming that Heath was a clever fraud. Joyce Heath, he wrote, is not a human being but an automaton made up of whalebone, indirubber, rubber, and numberless springs. Those who had not bothered to see her before were immediately curious, and those who had already seen her paid to see her again to find out whether the rumor that she was a robot was true. In 1842, Barnum purchased the carcass of what was reported to be a mermaid. This creature resembled a monkey with the body of a fish, but the head and body were perfectly joined. It was truly a wonder. After some research, Barnum discovered that the creature had been expertly put together in Japan, where the hoax had caused quite a stir. He nevertheless planted articles in newspapers around the country, claiming the capture of a mermaid in the Fiji Islands. He also sent the paper woodcut prints of paintings showing mermaids. By the time he showed the specimen in his museum, a national debate had been sparked over the existence of this mythical creature. A few months before Barnum's campaign, no one had cared or even known about mermaids. Now, everyone was talking about them as if they were real. Crowds flocked in record numbers to see the Fiji mermaid and to hear debates on the subject. A few years later, Barnum toured Europe with General Tom Thumb, a five-year-old dwarf from Connection whom Barnum claimed was an 11-year-old English boy and whom he trained to do many remarkable acts. During this tour, Barnum's name attracted such attention that Queen Victoria, the paragon of sobriety, requested a private audience with him and his talented dwarf at Buckingham Palace. The English press may have ridiculed Barnum, but Victoria was royally entertained by him and respected him ever after interpretation. Barnum understood the fundamental truth about attracting attention. Once people's eyes are on you, you have a special legitimacy. For Barnum, creating interest meant creating a crowd. As he later wrote, every crowd has a silver lining, and crowds tend to act in conjunction. If one person stops to see your beggarman laying bricks in the street, more will do the same. They will gather like dust bunnies. Then, give a gentle push. They will enter your museum or watch your show. To create a crowd, you have to do something different and odd. Any kind of curiosity will serve the purpose. For crowds are magnetically attracted by the unusual and inexplicable. And once you have their attention, never let it go. It is, if it veers towards other people, it does so at your expense. 
Barnum would ruthlessly suck attention from his competitors, knowing what a valuable commodity it is. At the beginning of your rise to the top, then spend all your energy on attracting attention. Most important, the quality of the attention is irrelevant. No matter how badly his shows were reviewed or how slanderously personal were the attacks on his hoax, Barnum would never complain. If a newspaper critic revealed him particularly bad, in fact, he made sure to invite the man to an opening and to give him the best seat in the house. He would even write anonymous attacks on his own work. From Barnum's vantage point, attention, whether negative or positive, was the main ingredient of his success. The worst fate in the world for a man who yearned fame, glory, and of course power is to be ignored. Keys to Power Burning More Brightly Burning more brightly than those around you is a skill that no one is born with. You have to learn to attract attention, as surely as the lodestone attracts iron. At the start of your career, you must attach your name and reputation to a quality, an image that sets you apart from other people. This image can be something like a characteristic style of dress, or a personality quirk that amuses people and gets talked about. Once the image is established, you have an appearance, a place in the sky for your star. It is a common mistake to imagine that this peculiar appearance of yours should not be controversial, that to be attacked is somehow bad. Nothing could be further from the truth. To avoid being a flash in the pan and having your notoriety eclipsed by another, you must not discriminate between different types of attention. In the end, every kind will work in your favor. Barnum, as we have seen, welcomed personal attacks and felt no need to defend himself. He deliberately courted the image of being a humbug. The court of Louis XIV contained many talented writers, artists, great beauties, and men and women of incapable virtue. But no one was more talked about than the singular Duc de Lazon. The Duke was short, almost dwarfish, and he was prone to the most isolate kinds of behavior. He slept with the king's mistress and openly insulted not only the courtiers, but the king himself, Louis. Louis, however, was so beguiled by the Duke's eccentricities that he could not bear his absence from the court. It was simple. The strangeness of the Duke's character attracted attention. Once people were enthralled by him, they wanted him around at any cost. Society craves larger-than-life figures, people who stand above the general mediocrity. Never be afraid, then, of the quality that sets you apart and draw attention to you. Court controversy, even scandal. It is better to be attacked, even slandered, than ignored. All professions are ruled by this law and all professionals must have a bit of the showman about them. The great scientist Thomas Edison knew that to raise money, he had to remain in the public eye at any cost, almost as important as the inventions themselves as how he presented them to the public and courted attention. Edison would design visually dazzling experiments to display his discoveries with electricity. He would talk of future inventions that seemed fantastic at the time, robots and machines that could photograph thoughts and that he had no intention of wasting his energy on. But that made the people talk about him. He did everything he could to make sure that he received more attention than his great rival Nikola Tesla, who may actually have been more brilliant than he was, but whose name was far less known. In 1915, it was rumored that Edison and Tesla would be joint recipients of that year's Nobel Prize in Physics. The prize was eventually given to a pair of English physicists, only later was it discovered that the prize committee had actually approached Edison, but he had turned them down, refusing to share the prize with Tesla. By that time, his fame was more secure than Tesla. 
and he thought it better to refuse the honor than to allow his rival to the attention that would have come even from sharing the prize. By that time, his fame was more secure than Tesla's, and he thought it better to refuse the honor than to allow his rival the attention that would have come even from sharing the prize. If you find yourself in a lowly position that offers little opportunity for you to draw attention, an effective trick is to attack the most visible, most famous, most powerful person you can find. When Pedro Arentino, a young Roman servant boy of the early 16th century, wanted to get attention as a writer of verses, he decided to publish a series of satirical poems ridiculing the Pope and his affection for a pet elephant. The attack put Arentino in the public eye immediately. A slanderous attack on a person in a position of power would have a similar effect. Remember, however, to use such tactics sparingly after you have the public's attention, when the act can wear thin. Once in the limelight, you must constantly renew it by adapting and varying your method of courting attention. If you don't, the public will grow tired, will take you for granted, and will move on to a newer star. The game requires constant vigilance and creativity. Pablo Picasso never allowed himself to fade into the background. If his name became too attached to a particular style, he would deliberately upset the public with a new series of paintings that went against all expectations. Better to create something ugly and disturbing, he believed, than to let viewers grow too familiar with his work. Understand, people feel superior to the person whose actions they can predict. If you show them who is in control by playing against their expectations, you both gain their respect and tighten your hold of their fleeting attention. Part 2. Create an Air of Mystery In a world growing increasingly banal and familiar, what seems enigmatic instantly draws attention. Never make it too clear what you are doing or about to do. Do not show all your cards. An air of mystery heightens your presence. It also creates anticipation. Everyone will be watching you to see what happens next. Use mystery to beguile, seduce, even frighten. Observance of the Law Beginning in 1905, rumors started to spread throughout Paris of a young oriental girl who danced in a private home, wrapped in veils that she gradually discarded. A local journalist who had seen her dancing reported that a woman from the Far East had come to Europe laden with perfume and jewels to introduce some of the richness of the oriental color and life into the satiated society of European cities. Soon, everyone knew the dancer's name, Matahari. Early that year, in the winter, Small and select audiences would gather in a saloon filled with Indian statues and other relics, while an orchestra played music inspired by Hindu and Javanese melodies. After keeping the audience waiting and wondering, Matahari would suddenly appear in a startling costume, a white cotton brassiere covered with Indian-type jewels, jeweled bands at the waist supporting a sarong that revealed as much as it concealed, bracelets up to the arms. Then, Matahara would dance in a style no one in France had seen before, her whole body swaying as if she were in a trance. She told her excited and curious audience that her dance told stories from Indian mythology and Japanese folktales. Soon, the cream of Paris, the ambassadors from far-off lands, were competing for invitations to the saloon, where it was rumored that Matahara was actually performing sacred dances in the nude. The public wanted to know more about her. She told journalists that she was actually Dutch in origin, but had grown up in the island of Java. She would also talk about time spent in India, how she had learned sacred Hindu dances there, 
and how Indian women can shoot straight, ride horseback, and are capable of doing lagrithms and talk philosophy. By the summer of 1905, although few Persians had actually seen Matahara dance, her name was on everyone's lips. As Matahari gave more interviews, the story of her origins kept changing. She had grown up in India. Her grandmother was the daughter of a Japanese princess. She had lived in the island of Sumatra, where she had spent her time horseback riding, gun in hand, and risking her life. No one knew anything certain about her, but journalists did not mind these changes in her biography. They compared her to an Indian goddess from the pages of Baudelaire, whatever their imagination wanted to see in their mysterious woman from the east. In August of 1905, Matahari performed for the first time in public. Crowds thronging to see her at opening night caused a riot. She had now become a cult figure, spawning many imitations. One reviewer wrote, Matahari personifies all the poetry of India. Its mysticism, its voluptuousness, its hypnotizing charm. Another noted, if India possesses such unexpected treasures, then all Frenchmen will immigrate to the shores of the Ganges. Soon, the fame of Matahari and her sacred Indian dances spread beyond Paris. She was invited to Berlin, Vienna, Milan. Over the next few years, she performed throughout Europe, mixed with the highest social circles, and earned an income that gave her an independence rarely enjoyed by a woman of the period. Then, near the end of World War I, she was arrested in France, tried, convicted, and finally executed as a German spy. Only during the trial did the truth come out. Matahari was not from Java or India, had not grown up in the Orient, did not have a drop of Eastern blood in her body. Her real name was Margaret Zell, and she came from the Stalin northern province of Friesland, Holland. Interpretation. When Margaret Azil arrived in Paris in 1904, she had half a franc in her pocket. She was one of the thousands of beautiful girls who had flocked to Paris every year, taking work as artists, models, nightclub dancers, or vaudeville performers at the Folies Baguette. After a few years, they would inevitably be replaced by younger girls and would often end up on the streets turning to prostitution or else returning to the town they came from, older and chastened. Zell had higher ambitions. She had no dance experience and had never performed in the theater. But as a young girl, she had traveled with her family and had witnessed local dances in Java and Sumatra. Zell clearly understood that what was important in her act was not the dance itself or even her face or figure, but her ability to create an air of mystery about herself. The mystery she created lay not just in her dancing, or her costumes, or the stories she would tell, or in the endless lies about the origins, it lay in an atmosphere involving everything she did. There was nothing you could say for sure about her. She was always changing, always surprising her audience with new costumes, new dances, new stories. The air of mystery left the public always wanting to know more, always wondering about her next move. Matahari was no more beautiful than many of the other young girls who came to Paris, and she was not a particularly good dancer. What separated her from the masses, what attracted and held the public's attention and made her famous and wealthy, was her mystery. People are enthralled by mystery. Because it invites constant interpretation, they never tire of it. The mysterious cannot be grasped, and what cannot be seized and consumed creates power. Keys to power. In the past, the world was filled with the terrifying and unknowably diseased, disasters, capricious despots, the mystery of death itself. What we could not understand, we reimagined as myths and spirits. Over the centuries, though, we have managed, through science and reason, to illuminate the darkness. What was mysterious and forbidding has grown familiar and comfortable. Yet this light has a price. In a world that is ever more banal, that has had its mystery and myth squeezed out of it, we secretly, we secretly crave enigmas, 
people or things that cannot be instantly interpreted, seized, and consumed. That is the power of the mysterious. It invites layers of interpretation, excites our imagination, seduces us into believing that it conceals something marvelous. The world has become so familiar and its inhabitants so predictable that what wraps itself in mystery will almost always draw the limelight to it and make us watch it. Do not imagine that to create an air of mystery you have to be grand and awe-inspiring. Mystery that is woven into your day-to-day meaner and is subtle has that much more power to fascinate and attract attention. Remember, most people are up front, can be read like an open book, take little care to control their words or image, and are hopelessly predictable. By simply holding back, keeping silent, occasionally uttering ambiguous phrases, deliberately appearing inconsistent, and acting odd in the subtlest of ways, you will emanate an aura of mystery. The people around you will then magnify the aura by constantly trying to interpret you. Both artists and con artists understand the vital link between being mysterious and attracting interest. Count Victor Lusting, an aristocrat of swindlers, played the game to perfection. He was always doing things that were different, or seemed to make no sense. He would show up at the best hotel in a limo driven by a Japanese chauffeur. No one had ever seen a Japanese chauffeur before, so this seemed exotic and strange. Lustig would dress in the most expensive clothing, but also with something, a medal, a flower, an armband, out of place, at least in conventional terms. This was seen not as tasteless, but as odd and intriguing. In hotels, he would be seen receiving telegrams at all hours, one after the other. In hotels, he would be seen receiving telegrams at all hours, one after the other, brought to him by his Japanese chauffeur. Telegrams he would tear up with utter nonchalance. In fact, they were fakes completely blank, large and impressive looking book, smiling at people yet remaining aloof. Within a few days, of course, the entire hotel would be abuzz with interest in this strange man. All this attention allowed Lusting to lure suckers in with ease. They would beg for his confidence and his company. Everyone wanted to be seen with this mysterious aristocrat, and in the presence of this distracting enigma, they wouldn't even notice that they were being robbed blind. An air of mystery can make the mediocre appear intelligent and profound. It made Matahari a woman of average appearance and intelligence seemed like a goddess and her dancing divinely inspired. An air of mystery about an artist makes his or her artwork immediately more intriguing. A trick Marcel Duchamp played to great effect. It is all very easy to do. Say little about your work, tease and titillate with alluring, even contradictory comments, then stand back and let others try to make sense of it all. Mysterious people put others in a kind of inferior position that of trying to figure them out, to degrees that they can control. They also elicit the fear surrounding anything uncertain or unknown. All great leaders know that an aura of mystery draws attention to them and creates an intimidating presence. Mao Tse-sung, for example, cleverly cultivated an enigmatic image. He had no worries about seeming inconsistent or contradicting himself. The very contradictoriness of his actions and words meant that he always had the upper hand. No one, not even his own wife, ever felt they understood him, and he therefore seemed larger than life. This also meant that the public paid constant attention to him, ever anxious to witness his next move. If your social position prevents you from completely wrapping your actions in mystery, you must at least learn to make yourself less obvious. Every now and then, act in a way that does not mesh with other people's perceptions of you. This way, you keep those around you on the defensive, elicitating the kind of attention that makes you powerful. Done right, the creation of enigma can also draw the kind of attention that strikes terror into your enemy. 
During the Second Punic War, the great Carthaginian general Hannibal was wrecking havoc in his march on Rome. Hannibal was known for his cleverness and duplicity. Under his leadership, Carthage's army, though smaller than those of the Romans, had constantly outmaneuvered them. On one occasion, though, Hannibal's scouts made a horrible blunder, leading his troops into a marshy terrain with the sea at their back. The Roman army blocked the mountain passes that led inland, and its general, Fabius, was ecstatic. At least he had Hannibal trapped. Posting his best sentries on the passes, he worked on a plan to destroy Hannibal's forces. But in the middle of the night, the sentries looked down to see a mysterious sight. A huge procession of lights was leading up the mountain. Thousands and thousands of lights. If this was Hannibal's army, it had suddenly grown a hundredfold. The sentries argued heatedly about what this could mean. Reinforcements from the sea? Troops that had been hidden in the area? Ghost? No explanation made sense. As they watched, fires broke out all over the mountain, and a horrible noise drifted up to them from below, like the blowing of a million horns. Demons, they thought. The sentries, the bravest and most sensible in the Roman army, fled their post in panic. By the next day, Hannibal had escaped from the marshland. What was his trick? Had he really conjured up demons? Actually, what he had done was ordered bundles of twigs to be fastened to the horns of the thousands of oxen that traveled with his troops as beasts of burden. The twigs were then lit, giving the impression of the torches of a vast army heading up the mountain. When the flames burned down to the ox's skin, they stampeded in all directions, like mad, and setting fires all over the mountainside. The key to this device's success was not the torches, the fires, or the noises in themselves, however, but the fact that Hannibal had created a puzzle that captivated the sentry's attention and gradually terrified them. From the mountaintop, there was no way to explain this bizarre sight. If the sentries could have explained it, they would have stayed at their post. If you find yourself trapped, cornered, and on a defensive in some situation, try a simple experiment. Do something that cannot be easily explained or interpreted but carry it out in a way that unsettles your opponent, a way that many away with many possible interpretations, making your intentions obscure. Don't just be unpredictable, although this tactic too can be successful. See law number 17. We'll read that one later. Like Hannibal, create a scene that cannot be read. There will seem to be no method to your madness, no rhyme or reason, no single explanation. If you do this right, you will inspire fear and trembling and the sentries will abandon their post. Call it the feigned madness of Hamlet. Tactic for Hamlet uses it to great effect in Shakespeare's play, frightening his stepfather Claudius through the mysteries of his behavior. The mysterious makes your force seem larger, your power more terrifying. In the beginning of your rise to the top, you must attract attention at all costs, but as you rise higher, you must constantly adapt. Never wear the public out with the same tactic. An air of mystery works wonders for those who need to develop an aura of power and get themselves noticed, but it must seem measured and under control. Matahari went too far with the fabrications. Although the accusations that she was a spy was false, at the time it was a reasonable presumption because all her lies made her seem suspicious and nefarious. Do not let your air of mystery be slowly transformed into a reputation for deceit. The mystery you create must seem a game, playful and unthreatening. Recognize when it goes too far and pull back. There are times when the need for attention must be deferred and when scandal and notoriety are the last thing you want to create. 
The attention you attract must never offend or challenge the reputation of those above you, not at any rate if they are secure. You will seem not only paltry but desperate by comparison. There is an art to knowing when to draw notice and when to withdraw. Lola Montez was one of the great practitioners of the art of attracting attention. She managed to rise from a middle-class Irish background to being the lover of Franz Lizitz and then mistress of political advisor of King Ludwig of Bavaria. In her later years, though, she lost her sense of proportion. In London in 1850, there was to be a performance of Shakespeare's Macbeth featuring the greatest actor of the time. Charles John Keane. Everyone of consequence in English society was to be there. It was rumored that even Queen Victoria and Prince Albert were to make a public appearance. The custom of the period demanded that everyone be seated before the Queen arrived. The audience got there a little early, and when the Queen entered her royal box, they observed the convention of standing up and applauding her. The royal couple waited, then bowed. Everyone sat down, and the lights were dimmed. Then suddenly, all eyes turned to a box opposite Queen Victoria. A woman appeared from the shadows, taking her seat later than the queen. It was Lola Montez. She wore a diamond tiara on her dark hair and a long fur coat over her shoulders. People whispered in amazement as the ermine cloak was dropped to reveal a low-necked gown of crimson and velvet. People whispered in amazement as the ermine cloak was dropped to reveal a low-necked gown of crimson velvet. By turning their heads, the audience could see that the royal couple deliberately avoided looking at Lola's box. They followed Victoria's example, and for the rest of the evening, Lola Montez was ignored. After that evening, no no one in fashionable society dared to be seen with her. All her magnetic powers were reversed. People would flee her sight. Her future in England was finished. Never appear overly greedy for attention then, for it signals insecurity and insecurity drives power away. Understand that there are times when it is not your interest to be the center of attention. When in the presence of a king or queen, for instance, or the equivalent thereof, bow and retreat to the shadows. Never compete. So that concludes law number six, court attention at all cost. Now at the onset of this episode, I said to think about a person that affects every single one of us, and I mentioned Trump. Now, if you do not see some of the tactics that he has used in that book, then you do not know Trump. Look how much scandal and how many things he has around him. It would seem as though maybe he may have gone a little too far one way with this pushing this narrative of being the, you know, do-it-all guy, I'm going to make the changes. Well, you, you also have the narrative of having Russian spies, you have um, a lot of scandals around you that when you're done with your four possibly eight years, you still have to live with all the scandals and everything you've said and all the videos and all the tapes of you saying things. So again, I just wanted to bring that point up, make you guys think about that on that book. And I do not have a problem with Trump. I could care less one way or the other at this point. He's already in there. So I'm not saying all these things to be negative about him if that offends you, but I am saying recognize the trait. And this has a trait very similar to Trump. As the leader of our free world, I think that's an example we can learn from whether it's good or bad. All right. So that concludes Challenge Your Environment's episode today of law number six. And if you get a chance to, check back with me and we're going to keep going on and read more more laws from this book. It, uh, it, it, it inspires me and I hope that it inspires you. Today's was court attention at all cost. Have a great day.